All right, well, forgive me if... Uh, oh, could, Adam, could you go up and turn that rear projector on? I forgot to turn that one on, and I'm not going to know when to turn my... Uh, not to want to turn my slides if I don't have that thing as a visual. Otherwise, I'll be preaching backwards to you tonight, and we don't want to do that. So, um, Disclaimer, I uh, am pretty bad at remembering to turn the slides. So if uh, it seems like you're missing something and you need that, just kind of give me a little like this, and I'll know that I need to forward and advance my slides so that we can uh, know what we're all talking about here. So our question 37 tonight has to do with, as we have spoken of some already, uh, adoption. And so the question that we are asking today is, what is adoption? And the answer to that question, according to the Baptist Catechism we've been studying through, is that adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And so as we begin to think about and meditate on this tonight, uh, this is a quote that probably most of you have heard from some source or another. This one just happens to be Mother Teresa saying this. She said, uh, no color, no religion, no nationality should come between us. We are all children of God. And this is a quote that is not unique to her. We've heard this from several famous voices over the years. And it sounds like a great quote. Uh, why do people want to believe this kind of a quote is true? Yeah, there's a desire for inclusion. There's a desire to everyone to be on the same page. A unity is something that we kind of yearn for, right? Uh, but the fact of the matter is, it's not true. It's not something that the scripture teaches us. If, if no one is lost, if all of us are a part of the family of God, then no one needs to be found. I mean, we're all okay. But even a, a cursory reading of the Bible challenges this concept. Are we all children of God? Well, let's look at this biblically. Revelation 4.11 teaches us that we're all the creation of God. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This passage reminds us not only were we created by God, but we are existing even now by the sustaining power of God. The book of Hebrews says that Christ upholds the, the universe by the word of his power. So not only we, did we come from the will of God, his creative will, but he is also sustaining us. All things were created by the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, involved in this process of making the, the stage for life and then filling it with countless creatures. And that includes mankind. So... Every human being owes their existence to God. But the idea of a father-child relationship is a bit more significant than that of a creator and his creation. I made a steak sandwich for lunch today, but I don't consider that sandwich my baby, right? That's not my son. It's not my daughter. It was delicious, but it was just a thing. To be created by God does not make you God's son or daughter necessarily. And remember that only Jesus can be considered the begotten son of God. He is the only begotten son of God, uh, the father. So obviously there was something special about the creation of mankind as compared to the creation of all other creatures in God's universe. 
Um, and that has to do with the fact that we are all bearing the image of God. Human beings all bear His image. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now this means that we are made for the express purpose of God displaying His image of authority and dominion and truth in us, in our lives. Now we do not do that perfectly. In fact, Apart from God's grace, we fail horribly at the task of bearing the image of God. Uh, Only one man in the history of the world has expressed the image of God the way that a man should. And that man is Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians bears testimony to this in very clear terms. Chapter 1, verse 15, it says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2, 8 says... For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And what a powerful scripture to describe to us that there is nothing lacking in Christ in the image of God. He's the complete uh, reflection of the Father and that in him we have a picture of the true and living God. Now every human being bears the image of God and yet we are not all children of God. This falls short of calling us a part of God's family. We understand this by a confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees, who were a part of the covenant people of Israel, yet who did not accept Jesus as the promised Messiah, or at least the vast majority of them were very resistant to the idea that Christ was the fulfillment of the promises that had been given in the Old Covenant. And so there's this interaction in John chapter 8, which we're going to look at here for a minute, in which Jesus addresses the idea of childhood and fatherhood. Who belongs to God the Father? So he says in chapter 8, verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. He's implying that there's a difference there, that his Father was not the same as the Father that they should be calling their own. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our Father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Trigger happy there. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God, which is interesting because they just said their father was Abraham and now they're already switching their story. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me for I come from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, there is an estrangement that's acknowledged here by Christ. Though these Pharisees were of Jewish blood, they were men of the covenant, the old covenant. And even though they were able to boast of good deeds that they had done in the name of God the Father, they were nevertheless not considered by Jesus to be a part of God's family. Obviously, that shocked them. And what he had to say after that shocked them even worse. He goes on to say that they are indeed sons of the devil. Their will is to act in a way that is consistent with the rebellion of the devil. 
And these aren't, remember, these aren't the criminals of the day. These aren't the guys who are going out murdering and pillaging and stealing and creating riots. These were considered the most religious people in the society at that time. But they lacked the faith in God that would qualify them, identify them, and set them apart as God's people. By the curse of Adam and the sin and the falling of the first man, we are enemies by nature, not offspring of God, but enemies of God. Look at what Romans 8 says about this. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile towards God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So our sin makes us by birth children of the devil. Not only that, but the sin of the first man, Adam, which was imputed to us, ensures that it's not just our failures that make us an enemy to God, that we are that by our new crooked nature. Consider the great tragedy of what it means to not belong to God due to our sin. This is a tremendous tragedy. The one whose image we were created to bear is estranged from us, not because of what he did, He's not a father who abandons his child on the side of the road. We are estranged from our creator because of what we did. We are born with the curse of death inherited from the first man who was our representative, our federal head. And our actions proved without exception that we are breakers of God's law. And so the greatest honor that could be bestowed upon us, the fact that we get to bear the image of God, is the very thing that we fumble straight out of the gate with that we continually fail to do right. The image of God in man is tarnished by this rebellion of sin. When we break God's law, as those who bear the image of God, we twist that image that we're reflecting. We don't show him properly to the world. I remember in a, a church that I grew up in, we had a pastor named Jim, and, and Jim always had on the back of his car, these big bumper stickers about Jesus and about the church. And we would go and peel them off of his car because he was the worst driver on the road in Livermore, okay, the worst. And he would often just cut people off and he would speed and he would. And so we're like, Jim, you can't be driving like that and put a big old Christian bumper sticker on the back of your car because it twists the impression that people have of your church. And that's just a small reflection of how I break the image of God when I sin against my Father who is infinitely more holy and, and pure and worthy of, of good representation. Man does not cease to bear the image of God because of his sin. He just ceases to do it well. Now we know that because verses like Genesis 9-6 which says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is the very basis for the law against murder. This is years and years before Moses ever comes on the scene. This is spoken to Noah after the flood. So if this is our moral bedrock for the value and the sanctity of life, then it applies not just to those who are the people of God, it applies to all men. We are all made in the image of God. We see it again in the New Testament in James 3.9 where it says, With it, when he's speaking of the tongue and the way that we use our tongue to speak, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
So our failure to bear the likeness well does not mean we don't get to bear the likeness anymore. We are continually not bearing it well unless we are trusting in and abiding in the one who can help us to bear his image, which is Christ, the Son of God. But there's still a great sense of loss and regret in that mankind, apart from the saving grace of Jesus, cannot be what he was meant to be. Um, a couple years back for Christmas, my wife got me a, a big TV, right? That's what guys want for Christmas, a big old TV. And it's sitting on the floor of my bedroom right now, dead as a doornail. Uh, something went wrong in the processor in the TV. It's only a couple years old, but it's this great big thing taking up room. And what a pitiful piece of machinery it is that it can't, doesn't have sound. It doesn't have picture. It just takes up space. And there's a great tragedy to know that we are designed to do something very noble and good and beautiful to bear this image of God. And yet that one thing that should be so precious to us, this gift and this privilege that we have of bearing his image is the one thing that apart from God, we cannot do. We absolutely cannot bear his image properly. It's like the picture is dead. There's no sound. Any image we try to give of God apart from God himself is going to be a twisted and distorted image of God. It's going to be a lie. So there's a disconnection between man and God because of sin. Adam and Eve received curses with their first sin, but those curses were followed by something even sadder. They were followed by a physical expulsion from the Garden of Eden. They could no longer walk with the one who made them. So sin came not only with legal consequence, it came with relational consequence as well. So the, the nearness, the greatest joy that Adam experienced up to that point, that Eve experienced up to that point, is stripped away from them. Oh, the agony of being apart from God not being able to dwell with him and to, to know him face to face. John 9.31 says, We know that God does not listen to sinners. Just think about that for a minute. God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, then God listens to him. This sentiment that we are all the children of God makes the world think that anybody at any time just has access to God, can pray to him as if he's their father, and yet they can go around living as if he doesn't exist most of the time until there's a great need, or they are desperate and they want God to step in and solve their problem just so that they can go another day ignoring him after that. The truth of the matter is those who are not children of God, God does not have to pay attention to their needs. He does not have to listen to their prayers. Now the prayer of confession, the prayer of repentance that comes when the Holy Spirit awakens a, a dead heart, that prayer will always be heard from the Lord. But for somebody who does not walk and dwell with Christ, who's not living in a trustful relationship redeemed by the Savior, their prayers don't necessarily make it to the ears of God. He has no obligation to listen to them and to bless them. As Romans 8.8 8 said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He sees their sin and he cannot pretend that it is not there. It demands a payment, it demands his wrath. So as with many doctrines, when they are untaught, the true doctrines of Scripture, when we don't hear them preach from a pulpit, we don't, when we don't hear correction, when people say things the wrong way, then there's great potential for those unspoken doctrines to severely hamper our, our two things. First, our evangelism. And secondly, our understanding of who God really is. I mean, think about this in terms of evangelism. If we believe that 
everyone is a child of God, then why bother with the, the often awkward work of preaching the gospel to people who are living in sin and who are living in such a way that the wrath of God is bearing down upon them? Why would we do that if some cosmic way they're already children of God, God's not going to really cast them away, maybe they're not living the best life that they could be living, but why would we be evangelistic if we didn't see these people as in need desperate need of redemption and forgiveness from this God. They need to be brought into this family. And so the doctrine of adoption in some ways should motivate us to care for those who are lost, who are not yet brothers and sisters to us, because they're in deep, deep trouble apart from the grace of Jesus Christ alone. And secondly, if this doctrine goes untaught, then our understanding of God becomes corrupted. If we are all God's children, then why isn't God drawing all of his children near to him? Is he a neglectful father? Does he send his own children to hell? What kind of a father would do that? A good father chastises his own children. He punishes them rightly so that they will not fall into perpetual sin, so that they will turn away from their wickedness and their error. Does God chastise the reprobate? Or does he simply judge them? Because they don't have Christ. See, a misunderstanding that we are all children of God can give us a twisted image of God as an inadequate father. So we need to grab a hold of this doctrine and think about it accurately and clearly. Now I want us to think for a second, just shifting gears a little bit, think about the great blessing of belonging to a family where there is a loving, consistent father present. What is it like to be in a home where you know there is a dad who represents strength and authority, a dad who doesn't lie to you or provoke you to anger unnecessarily. All the resources that you need are at your dad's disposal, and this father is happy to share them with you. You might not have experienced this kind of a family growing up, but I think you can imagine the safety and the joy of living in a home where this kind of consistency and security exists. This father is wise, and he's willing to impart his wisdom to you. He protects you. He doesn't abuse you. He keeps others from abusing you. He understands you. There are conversations where he's listening to you, and you know that he's watching you, and your life is important to him. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants what is best for you and is willing to oppose your heart if it is threatening your well-being or the well-being of the family. He will correct you with a gentle but firm hand. Think about what it's like to live in a house like that. The next few Sunday nights, we're going to go into the details regarding the blessings that flow out of redemption. Redemption being the forgiveness of sin and the removal of God's wrath from a sinner. This is a tremendous blessing in and of itself, but from that first blessing of regeneration and justification flow other blessings, important blessings, monumental blessings. And one of the greatest gifts that comes along with salvation by grace is the gift of adoption. And so in John 1, verses 12 through 13, we hear the scripture tell tell us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So that idealistic home that I just described to you, this kind of home that we would all love to be a part of, this home of security and truth and order, that is a home that those who trust in Christ get to be a part of, not just for a time. They don't just get to visit that home. They get to be invited into that home permanently. The right to be called the children of God is not a right that belongs to everyone. We see that here in in John. So how do we obtain this right? How do we find our way into the family of God? According to John 1, it is not a right that we earn, is it? Some are confused by this passage because it may seem at first that our belief is what triggers the reception of this right. But as we're going to see these next several weeks, we're going, to, we're going to learn that when Christ saves a person, that is what triggers these blessings to pour out into the life of a believer. The first part of John 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so some will point to that and say, See, look, it's up to you. You have to believe. You've got to muster up the faith to trust in this God. But look at what verse 13 says to carefully clarify what God means by this. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Where does this come from? It comes from the volition, from the will of a God who knows we are wrecks without him, knows it better than we do, and wants us in his family. And so he reaches across that divide. Even though we might be pushing away with him with all our might, though we might be struggling against his will, And mocking his law, he grabs a hold of us and pulls us out of the chaos into this wonderful home that I just described to you. The rest of the sentence adds clarity and precision to our understanding. John expands on the first thought by describing these adopted children as those who are born not of blood. blood. So it's not something that we're we're raised into, right? Just because you might have been born in a Christian home, that doesn't mean you're automatically a child of God either. Just because you might have a Jewish lineage, that doesn't mean you're automatically a part of God's covenant people. Not in this new covenant, not in this better covenant. We're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. I mean, it's not something that you have to desire on your own, nor of the will of man. It's not something that you've got to be the judge and look at all the options and then decide yourself, well, Christianity is the most logical. It makes the most sense. It's historically the most verifiable. I'm going to go with that one. No, this is not an act of our hearts or minds. This is an act of the will of God. Adoption is the voluntary invitation of an abandoned child to enter into and be united to an existing family, a healthy family. It is clearly the will of God to save a people from the devastating reality of sin. And in saving, God's will is to add men and women to his own family by this way of adoption. So I want you now, if you've got your Bibles, please open up with me to Ephesians chapter 1. There are so many wonderful passages of Scripture, and I, I think if you were to really dwell on this idea of adoption and then read through the New Testament, you'd be surprised at how many evidences you see that this is one of the greatest gifts we should be rejoicing in. We don't have time to go over all of them tonight. We're going to hit on several, but we're going to kind of orbit around Ephesians chapter 1 as we think about the scriptural beauty of this gift of adoption. So Ephesians chapter 1, um, starting with verse 4. 
the second half of verse 4, in fact, just the last little part, which I believe belongs better in verse 5. And we're going to read verses 5 and 6 too. So there at the end of verse 4, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so the first point we really want to focus in on here tonight regarding this doctrine of, lo- of loving adoption is that in love he predestined us for adoption. So pause there for a minute because I know that frequently the, the doctrine of predestination tends to make people feel uncomfortable. And it doesn't need to. If we simply look at the scriptures and what the scripture says about predestination right here, is predestination a doctrine of love? Or is it a doctrine of dominance? Is it a doctrine of manipulation? Is it a doctrine that strips our freedom away? The scripture just plainly says here, and if we trust the scripture, it cannot lie to us that predestination is a doctrine of love. It is a loving reality that we should rejoice in and thank God for. Predestination, which is the volitional choice of God to save a specific people for his own glory, is not an act of cruel exclusion. It's not an act of dominance that renders free men slaves. Rather, it is an act of beautiful, godly love. And why wouldn't it be? All that God saves are taken out of a hopeless situation of rebellion and disappointment and transferred to a loving arrangement of acceptance, of belonging, and a new identity that is in every conceivable way better than the condition that they were plucked out of. Now, I'm so grateful that I got to preach on this particular blessing of redemption because over the past three and a half years, God has given me a more vivid picture of the beauty of this doctrine of adoption. And uh, he's done the same for my family because we've uh, been in that process of adopting little Rosie. Um, She is such a blessing to us, and we've learned so many lessons through this. We've learned patience. We've learned to to dwell in faith in the Lord. We've learned uh, to rejoice in the surprise of unexpected blessings and to be grateful that God has joys in store for us that are very different than the joys we anticipate for ourselves. We've, We've learned how to be more intentional in our parenting. So many different lessons that we've learned through this process of adoption. And when Rosie, um, who was born into addiction, when she was taken out of the guardianship of her birth parents at only a few hours old, and two days later, after spending time in, in the hospital, she was turned into the hands of the Neves family, did anyone ask her if she was okay with it? No. They didn't consult Rosie. They did not ask her opinion of it. The decision was made completely apart from her will. Now, she's a little human being, right? She's a free little human being. But she was put into a family, not of her own design. She was put into a family that people who are wiser and farther along the road thought would be a much better family than the family she was taken out of. And to her credit, she didn't fight it too much, right? She has seemed to adjust to us quite well. But the reality is someone who could understand far more than she could made a decision on her behalf. They looked at the family she was born into and they said, this is not the family 
that is going to provide Rosie with a reasonable chance at health and happiness. You know, to the court's credit, they gave that birth mom and dad every opportunity and every resource to try to turn their lives around. But in the curse of sin, there was no power for them to do that. Without trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting themselves to his hand, they did not have the power to overcome their flesh. And it was a decision that rescued her. Sometimes I'll just sit and think about what my daughter's life would be like if she was not with us right now. And I try to imagine what it would be like for her to deal with the chaos of a life that's dominated by addiction and promiscuity and hatred and lies and deceit. And I just am so thankful that God rescued that little girl out of that, that she doesn't have to experience that. And I'm not saying that the Neves family is a perfect household, okay? It is not by any stretch of the mean, uh, imagination, okay? But I'm so grateful that God knew better and he put her into hands of people that by God's grace are loving her well. When she turns six or eight and we start to share her past with her and let her know what, what happened when she was young, what if she wants to go back and live with them? Will we let her go? No, we chose her. We adopted her into our family and she belongs to us now. Her identity has been transferred to our family. Likewise, God has generously predestined to bring some of the reprobate sinners of this world out of the terrible environment of death and bring them into a situation where they will be something that they were not before. And it is for their good. And when he does that, they are his forever. So we look at Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. And we look at the second great reality of this adoption. He has adopted these sons and daughters, or he has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So this adoption that is conferred upon us, look at that word sons. What does that mean? It is not generic. It is not just some position or station. It is personal. A son is a relationship that is intimately personal. Romans 8 verses 14 through 17 expands upon this. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There is no doubt that our justification is a rescue from the certain doom of God's wrath and that God's willingness to bring this about demands from us a gratitude and an appreciation that we should be happy with whatever God gives to us because it is certainly better. Whatever God pulls us into out of this mire of self-consumed sinfulness, anything is better than that. So if God had rescued us from sin only to make us his lowliest slaves, we should be relieved and we should rejoice because we used to be slaves to sin. We used to be slaves to wretchedness and to self-deception. We used to be slaves to a taskmaster that we could not bear. And if God were to have saved us out of that and just simply made us hard labor servants for the rest of our lives in his kingdom, 
That would have been something to be grateful for. You think about the prodigal son who came home and was happy to have a job working the worst job on his father's estate because anything would be better than the slop and the pigs that he was feeding back in his lostness and his rebellion. But God did so much more than that for us, friends. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. God did not rescue you out of your sin and to give you some lowly station that was better than the wrath of God, but still difficult and trying and hard. Instead, in God's great mercy, he did more than wipe away our debt and release us from his justified wrath. He took us in the complete opposite direction by bringing us personally near to himself, inviting us to dwell with him, not as a guest, but as his own very children, very own children. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, there's been a lot of uh, scholarly argument over this term, Abba, which is kind of baffling to me a little bit. Is it a special familiar term like daddy? Uh, the first scholar who suggested this was a Lutheran scholar named Joachim Jeremias in 1971. And it is an idea that has since gained great popularity and has been shared far and wide since. But for some reason, it, it is a topic that many have passionately refuted, actually. With some such as University of Freiburg's George Shelbert, who first attacked the notion with a long essay. Apparently that wasn't enough because in 2011, he went so far as to publish a book-length treatment just to dispute the idea that the word Abba is a term of endearment like daddy. And I think to myself, really people? That's what we're writing books about today? That's what we're, we're passionately arguing against? The word doesn't have to mean daddy. It doesn't have to be a cutesy child word for papa to have significance for us. The word Abba, if it just means father, is a title that you don't use for your neighbor or for your boss or for your governor. You use it for your own parent. And that is what God is to us if we had trusted in Jesus Christ and what an honor it is to think of God not just as the factory out of which we sprang, not just as our creator, but as our loving father, the one who looks after us and cares for our needs. When Jesus was in the garden facing his greatest trial before he went to the cross for us, do you remember what he said in Mark 14, 36? He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And I, you know, I grew up in portions of my life. My dad was not in my life as a child. And I remember the longing that I had for that strong figure. But one of the things that really appealed to me when I began to learn the gospel is this idea of adoption whereby a father who is greater than any earthly father would look down on a street kid like me, just a dirty little poor kid, and want to love me consistently for the rest of eternity, that he would bring me into his home and let me be a part of his family. It was Christ's urgent need to communicate with his father, with his Abba in that moment of great importance. And brothers and sisters, by the incredible gift of adoption, that same luxury has been afforded to us. While God has no obligation to heed the prayer of the sinner, he does and will hear every cry 
that those who are saved make to him. For we have become fully his children through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what J.I. Packer has to say. I think I got this on a slide for you. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. To be adopted by God is to have a certain legal rights bestowed upon you by him. As a Christian in the household of God, you have the right to his name. You are called after your Savior. You are called a Christian. It's no small thing to be identified by the name Christian. And it is a joy to know that those who are God's daughters and sons are known by that name and have their name written in his special Lamb's book of life. When you get married to someone, the fact that you now share a name means something, doesn't it? It means there's a legal connection to you, but it also means there's a connection between your stories. For the rest of eternity, who you are is going to be tied to who Christ is. And before it was tied to Christ as well, you were the object of his wrath because he's a just and holy God and will not tolerate sin forever. But now, by his grace, you've been made a part of the the lighter side of the story. You are now his son and daughter, redeemed from that life of rebellion and constant battle against God. He has won you to himself. You have the right to lasting, loving relationships in this family that he's established. The church as a family connects us on a level that transcends blood. And I remember reading the passages in the Gospels where Mary and Jesus' brothers approached the place where Jesus was preaching. And he was informed that they wanted to see him. I'll just I'll read that for you. It's from Luke 8. This is 19 through 20. I'm already there. There we go. And then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, my earliest read of this passage, I remember feeling a little awkward as I read that, as if Jesus was dismissing his own mother and brothers. I felt bad for them, like he was making little of their family connections. And I was told that, you know, family is important. You've got to care about your family. Don't, don't turn your back on your family. But as I grew to understand the depth of what was meant by Christ in that statement to the other brothers and sisters that were there hearing him preach, what it means to be a part of God's church, the more I began to see that Jesus wasn't speaking down on blood relations. He was speaking up on church relations. He was helping us to recognize the glory of being bound, not just by genetics, but by the Holy Spirit of God himself who indwells everyone who confesses and trusts in Christ. Missy's parents recently moved to the Dallas area and then moved back, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, They moved to Dallas to look for better job opportunities, and they immediately tried to put pressure on Missy to move out to Dallas. They're like, 
We're going out. You could get a big house out there, sell your place here. You'll have equity. You can put some money in the bank and it'll be great. There's all these conservative Christians out in Texas. We didn't even barely consider it because our closest family is this church. It's the brothers and sisters alongside whom we worship, alongside whom we serve, whose spiritual gifts have been a joy to us and a, and a comfort and a support to us. These are our brothers and sisters and mothers right here. And what a joy to know that because of this spiritual adoption that we have received in Jesus, we're going to be part of another, um, we're going to be part of a family with one another forever in a heavenly home that Jesus is currently preparing for us. You know, one of the rights that we receive through adoption is a little bit more abstract. It's the right to a heavenly home and its resources. That's harder for us to grasp right now because we live in a place where we're sojourners, right? We are not technically a part of this world in the way that we will be a part of Zion. But nonetheless, it's important to think about our belonging there. We belong in the household of God. We have a place that will truly be home for us. We're no longer orphans searching for origin or a place of our own. We have a place we know we are welcome. The arms of our Father will, will be open for us there. He provides for our needs and His resources are abundant in that house. And He's never putting pressure on us to launch and to get out of the coop, right? He wants us near to Him. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And listen to this last part. And if a son, then an heir through God. To be the son of the king of the universe is a humbling thought. Right? What he owns, and what does the scripture tell us? It says that the cattle on a thousand hills are his. All things belong to the Lord. And as his sons and daughters, all things in some way belong to us as well through our connection to him. We have an inheritance. And this inheritance isn't something that some lawyer is going to weasel us out of someday. This is a sure inheritance kept in heaven for us. 1 John 3.1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So if nothing else, I hope that hearing these scriptures tonight is helping you to understand to a greater degree just how blessed you are to experience the love of God for his children. How blessed are we that we get to experience the love shared between siblings who have similar experiences in being lost and being reprobate and being far away from God and then being drawn near to Him through His grace. Hebrews 10, 12, or 2, 10 through 12 rather, says, For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. So this Savior who has lived a perfect life and then allowed himself to be crushed on your behalf, he's something that you can think of now as a brother. 
He is a hero to us, without a doubt. He is our Savior. He's our King and our Lord. But there's also a familiarity there that He was willing to come out and condescend and take on flesh to be with us so that we might understand that He knows us well, that He understands the condition of humanity. And so there's a camaraderie there, a brotherhood with Christ. And there's a camaraderie and a brotherhood with Christ when we suffer along with Him, when we as Christians take flack because we have this Father who's not very popular in the world right now. This God who demands holiness and righteousness and goodness. The world that we live in that is far from God is not going to be friendly to that. But we have a big brother who looks out for us, who cares for us, and is near to us through his blood. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And it's a joy for us to have brothers and sisters in the Lord, people that we can sit with and just talk about the glory of heaven with, that we can, you know, for a moment, just, just put the stresses of life aside and just rejoice in those amazing blessings and promises that none of us deserve. It's not some competition when we come together and we say, well, you know, I got a little further than you did before grace saved me. Now, we, we know the gospel. We know that none of us deserve to be here. So we're on equal footing. We're all the recipients of a grand grace that could only come from a willing father who cared simply because he wanted to care. What a joy to share that experience and that serendipitous joy and grace with brothers and sisters who likewise were snatched from the terror of sin and iniquity. So we've been able to see by the evidence of the scripture tonight that there are many great blessings that are ours by the way of this important reality of adoption. But we're not the only ones, or even the primary ones, who benefit from this adoption. Returning to Ephesians chapter 1, those verses that we're orbiting around tonight, look at those passages again. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. His adoption of wicked sinners like us is such a testimony to his own mighty mercy, to his own gracious love, that he benefits in some ways even more than we do because who he is is on display. We are finally bearing the image of God and we bear it and reflect it by the grace that he has shown to us. So in some ways, the fall is fortunate because the love of God is displayed in even mightier ways by the fact that He didn't just wipe our slate clean and send us off, but He redeemed us out of our wretchedness and brought us near to Him and then identified with us. And now the glory of God shines brightly in our lives. The closer we abide in Him, the more we consistently love Him and seek Him and trust Him for the strength that we need to live day by day. To close, R.C. Sproul wonderful Presbyterian pastor wrote this about adoption. He says, Our adoption into God's family is not so much something that confers a benefit to us. In the first instance, it is something that enhances the reputation of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has opted to become our God and Father too. All the praise is His. Our adoption arises out of His choice and focuses on His glory and praise. We did not deserve it and could not achieve it, but God by his mercy and favor, conveys this, conveys this blessing on us that he will be praised throughout endless ages of eternity.
Father, we thank you for being our Father. We're so grateful, God, that this is not just some clinical study where we gather, gather together and look at some historical figure or some idealistic being that is so transcendent and far beyond us that we will never draw near to him, Lord. Instead, we come together in times of worship like this because you dwell among us. Your spirit is in our hearts, Lord God. We are bound to you in relationship. And we know, Lord God, that, that everyone has some kind of relationship with you. It's either a relationship of judgment, if they are in the covenant of Adam, or it's a relationship of love and forgiveness and grace, if we are in that better new covenant. And so for those of us who call upon your name tonight, Lord, we rejoice and we are so very thankful that you are the one who governs our house, that we look to you for direction and guidance, that you love us enough even to show us when we're wrong, God, and to lovingly scold us if we need it so that we will not walk in the ways that we used to walk, the ways of destruction. But mighty God, we are also thankful that for those who do not yet know you, that there is still time for them to hear the glory of this wonderful blessing of redemption, part of which is the glorious adoption by which you make those who are enemies to the kingdom, not just citizens, but sons and daughters. And so we thank you, Lord God, for the closeness we have to you through Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would not take these things for granted, but that they would be foundational to our joy and contentment and peace. And we pray this all in the perfect name of our brother, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, it's 727, so we do have some time for questions. If anybody would like some expansion on what we talked about tonight or would like to just respond with some reflections. So, Chris? I got a comment. Yeah. yeah, when you were talking about your daughter and the process of adoption, it just dawned on me like a fool. Like, I just realized, like, yeah, I, we already know, we already get the idea that God chose us, but, like, I just realized, like, like how you chose your daughter technically against her will and whatnot. It's like the same way with us. If we had the choice, we would just say no. That's what that's what dawned on me. If we had the choice, God or ourselves, we would just say ourselves. That's crazy. That's what scripture tells us, right? In Romans yeah. chapter ten it says that there are none righteous, none who seek after God. So this idea that we just need to find the seekers you know, there's some truth in that in that the Holy Spirit is waking up some people's hearts and making them desire the gospel. But really, we just need to preach that word to everyone and let the Holy Spirit work in the hearts of men and women who will be adopted into that family. We don't know who it is. We've got to treat everyone with love and as potential family members. But I'm, I'm glad that that resonated with you because, uh, you know, it doesn't resonate with everyone. I think some people are hostile to that idea that God fair. chooses us. <laughs> yeah, it's what you hear a lot of times, right? Expand on that. What do you mean? Well, he was saying that that Rosie was adopted against his will. Okay. He wasn't kicking and screaming. She didn't have a will. Didn't actually. have. So you're saying the analogy doesn't follow? The analogy doesn't comport at one to one. I think right because even as Christians, it's not we're not saved against our will. We're made willing. So, that's, so yeah. I think yeah. in the in the um, catechism. Yeah questions preceding this dealt with the effectual call and people being born again so as that we are made willing at that point. Not, nobody is, yeah. man, I hate being saved by God. <laughs> you know, like, 
but, the worst thing that's ever happened. Right, 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 right. And, uh, and I think that the illustration with Rosie then even makes more sense at that point because through the love that the family has shown to her, she's willingly a part of this. She loves the family. She yeah. enjoys those connections. Hopefully the Lord's grace will keep her in that. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I think it comes down to, I'm sorry, I think it comes down to uh, how you express it. One comes out the other. Like our, our fallen wills are, are adversely affected by being children of Adam. So, like Chris said, yeah, he's right. I mean, it would be against our will if God left us in that state, but because he gives us a new heart, and that's the process by, like Pastor Paul was saying, the will changes, right? So, I think when we explain it, yeah, it can both can be true. It just depends on if we start out and say, here's how we start. Yes, it's against our will. We're, we're opposed to things of God. And then once we are yeah, the new heart comes with it in new will. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of the proof of whether you are in Christ or not. Is is that will there? Do you desire the things of the Lord? Do you have a, a hatred for your sin, and do you have an affection for Christ now that used to not be there? And that's that's a work that can only be done by the Lord Himself. Do you have your hand up, David? Kind of a curveball, but you brought it up. All right, that's cool. Um, can you define begotten, and are we or are we not? Are we begotten or not, and why? Yeah, begotten has to do with of the same substance. So, whereas we got to be careful with that term because you don't want to think of Christ as a created being. He is the firstborn, but that doesn't mean he's the first created. That's a position. That's yeah, that's a position of. of a distinction in a family. So he is, that's the position he plays, his role, is that he's the firstborn among many brothers. Um, but whereas begotten is a term that has to do with physical, it's like I have begotten sons in this front row, and Rosie is not my begotten daughter. But that doesn't mean she has any less a right to our family or a part in our family than these boys do. And so that's, that's the beautiful thing of that little subtle distinction in the scripture is that he is the only begotten. And then this idea of adoption, you hear it again and again, and you start to see why that's significant. Because he as the begotten is of the same substance as the Father, whereas we are created of, uh, by God, but we are not God in the flesh. We are not divine in the way that Jesus is. Yeah, good, good clarifying question. Well, the Bible does say we are begotten. It's just good to make that distinction that God is not like us, right? It's not like he became God or, you know, he was born almost like a, what's that heresy? Modalism. Modalism? Yeah, so I think it's First John that talks about we are begotten of God. It's the same word, but yeah. obviously who it's talking about changes the context dramatically. Yeah, a lot of the, the cults that would call themselves Christians, like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Iglesia ni Cristo, these cults, um, Part of their fundamental error is that they see Christ as the first created being, and he has some station above regular men, but essentially at his core, he's not eternal and divine like God is. He's just a man like us, in which case you are diminishing the character of God, and, and though you might worship him as better than us, he's not God in the flesh, and so you're downgrading him. You are failing to worship him the way he deserves to be worshipped, which is as fully a member of the triune Godhead. 
there's a good book on the topic if anybody's interested. It's on a, by Fred Sanders and Scott Swain called Retrieving Eternal Generation. So it's on that, it's a little bit of begotten and only begotten, or a little different, only begotten is mono, monogenes in Greek. So there's been debate in recent years as well. So it's a newer book, but it hits that topic if you're interested, brother. It's a good book on it. Retrieving Eternal Generation. Great, thanks. Josh. So I just want to talk about the value of having Christ as your father or family, being part of your family, and I can compare it to something um, like in my life. So um, I grew up in foster care, so um, I know like all the struggles of like not being, you know, like your family parents or you have your struggles, they cannot um, keep you, and you have to end up going into a system. Um, and the system Yeah. Yeah, God's not our emergency foster father for now, right? This idea of adoption has it carries a strong legal sense. And the the terms that are used here, if you go back and do historical research on the way that Romans considered adoption, it was fully that person is legally a member of your family and has the full rights of a family member. It's not some pseudo halfway thing. They become your family at that point. So, yeah, there's a permanency and a realness to it that, uh, that we should understand, that we should grasp, and that this is, uh, this is as, as, as full uh, integration into the family of God as we could possibly expect to have. That's good. You know, and as, as we... What's that? When you're adopted, it's permanent into the family. Yeah, and so the Lord has given you, Josh, some physical... Uh, trials by which you're able to understand and maybe appreciate that really well. But even with like my sons who are begotten sons, right? I, I, my hope for them is that they would love their heavenly father more than they love their earthly father. They would trust him better and know that he is superior in every guard than their earthly dad is. So, you know, that, that uh, comes across in having to confess my sin to my boys and, sh- and share with them when I've fallen short and haven't done a good a job as I should have with them. And I try to point them to Christ in that and remind them that the best I can do is be a reflection of this image of God that should be better and greater to them. So you've, you've got the real thing, Josh, and having God as your Heavenly Father. He is he's there for you. Go ahead, Paul. I have a, a question based on a comment that you made kind of more near the beginning. It's maybe kind of an offshoot, not, so it's not specific, uh, 100% on adoption, but... You had mentioned, and this part I agree with, uh, in Ephesians 1, 5, verse, in, well, 1, 4 and 5, verses in love, he predestined them for God's son. So I totally agree that, um, you know, it was a loving act and God predestined some to us in the display of his love. But at the same time, Jesus, so, so because of that, and then related, the biggest question I wanted to ask is that, do you see, or two-part question, is there any difference between predestination foreordination and God's decree or just ordination from, from God himself 
And then in light of that, what do we make then of the foreordaining of those who aren't foreordained or predestined to use that word there to salvation? I'm not saying that, or like sometimes people call it double predestination and that's kind of a tricky term, but you know, if there's definitely a decree or foreordination, foreordination, foreordination or predestination for some who aren't elect. Yeah. So is it loving then in that yeah. way? Well, it, it is just, and the truth is a loving thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, you can't separate those two things, really. I think that justice without love isn't justice, and love without justice isn't love. So to punish the, the filthy sinner is completely understandable. From a pure and a holy God, that's what he should do. But in his kindness he chooses to redeem some so the picture of God's glory and that's where we got at the end really is that this adoption is not just for us it's not just our blessing and benefit but the glory of God reflects brighter in us because of the strength of his salvation and redeeming us from this lost state but it doesn't mean it doesn't reflect beautifully in the judgment of the wicked as well and that's hard for us to understand um, as far as the you know the technical terms of I, I really couldn't give you a whole lot there as far as like parsing out the differences in those things. I haven't gotten that fine with it. So is predestination, you said, is a, a, a loving doctrine. In what way is it, is it a loving doctrine? If it's the same for, in an example, justice and the same, for example, grace. Yeah. I would say it's loving because it displays the honor and the glory of the most loving being, of a God who is love. So we can't just think of love as how does it affect man. Love is love because it is right and good. And love is good because it shows the glory of a loving God. So even in God predestining some to destruction, I think there is love in that because God loves the truth. And God hates what is sinful and wicked. And so there's a protection for what is right and good in the uh, condemnation of what is wicked and evil. Don't know if that's enough, but that's kind of where I'm seeing it. Right, just one thing. So yeah. I think when we're talking about these terms and parsing them out, I think uh, there are some technical differences that kind of help us understand uh, and not conflate the terms. I think that uh, being careful not to conflate the doctrine of revelation with the doctrine of election. You're right in saying, yes, there's protection. Like, for instance, even when we look at the final judgment, we see the abominable sorcerers outside the gates, you know, of eternity, you know, from the righteous, right? It's like, um, we even hear it in Revelation, nothing impure or unjust will ever enter into heaven, right? Um, but, eternally speaking, when you get into the logical order of decrees, there's a lot of debate on if it has to do with time or whatever. I'm, I'm a time guy. I think it does have to do with eternity before we saw time in this world. But I think in the mind of God, all we can do is logically deduce to arrive at these positions. You know, um, you're not going to get it from exegesis, is what I'm saying. I mean, in understanding God in different passages, um, we see that the reprobate, you know, the word adakimoi in Greek, it's, it's there forever considered worthless before God. Um, I think of 2 Timothy 3 when he says, as Janice and Jan reads, resistant Moses. 
So do these uh, men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning faith, right? The ones in Romans 1, God gave them over into a, an adopted one mind, a worthless mind, a reprobate mind, right? So it's like the image we get is the taking out of the trash. There's, there's no worth in them that God sees because Christ is not there, right? So even in 2 Timothy 2.20, it's one of my ones that I just I see the clearest image when he says in the great house, there you know, are many treasures, right? Some for honor and some for dishonor, right? So when you think of the sheep and the goats aspect, you know, God is eternally foreordained that there would be both. There would be one that would be an accursed children of the devil who he eternally has hatred for, and yeah. the ones that he decided to shed his love upon because of the covenant of redemption that he made with his son. So, it's probably useful for us also to remember that we're not better vessels than those who are sent to destruction. The only thing that makes us not trash is that we've been filled with the grace of God. All our glory and, and, and goodness is all His. It comes from Him. Sure. So, you know, yeah, we just don't, we don't, we're not the reprobate. Like before we were converted, we were children of wrath by nature. So yeah, we're just as undeserving as they are. But we can't be put in that category because God gave a love gift to the Son of people, you know, that He would call out for His name. You know, He should call His name Jesus, for He will say, his people, the specified number of chosen that will bring glory to God. It's not because there's anything good in us. It's the same reason he chose Israel, not because there was anything good about them, right? There's yeah. nothing good about us to make God desire us. So the reprobate technical term for those who before time God knew he'd be putting them in condemnation. So not an appropriate term to use for the saved even before they were saved. Yeah, it's, it's okay. some theologians like MacArthur's I'm more comfortable hearing it like actively because God didn't, it's not an afterthought. You know, God committed some to damnation and, you know, committed some to yeah. mercy. So I think we see that through Romans 9 as well. So it's, it's a difficult pill to swallow. I mean, even when you look at our own state, right, it's like we should be getting what they're getting, right? Yeah. So yeah. people no say, doubt. oh, it's not fair. Well, heaven is what's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, every Christian in this room is reaping what they didn't sow right now. You know, we're reaping life. And we didn't plant those seeds. We didn't put them uh, in the ground. We, we're getting something that is truly and faithfully belongs to the Lord. You know, in terms of um, human sense, like if we fulfill a sentence, I mean, that's more loving than not fulfilling, saying, yeah, we're going to put you on death roll. We may not kill you. We may kill you. I don't know. We'll just let you hang out there. Yeah. You know, then it's more loving to fulfill that, even though the end is not something we're excited about. Right. To not do that is wicked. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, and, and the, the character of God and His holiness, he, he has that. to eventually, you know, crush sin. He's got to do that. He can't strive with the wicked forever. Right. Yeah. Josh? I think something that might be kind of hard to comprehend, but the idea that for something they had no control over, right, being chosen to be born into 
Yeah. But I don't think it's totally accurate to say they had no control over it. You know, every single person apart from God has a choice and they choose the same thing. They choose to sin. They choose to fight against God because when you take the God out of the man, all you have is wretchedness. So, I can tell where you're coming from from a humor perspective. We often think, well, that's not fair for them. But if you really follow that logic along, like, why is it not fair? What does God owe to them that he should be beholden to give them a heaven like he gives us a heaven? He, does, he doesn't have to give that heaven to anyone. You know, every one of us falls short of glory of God and is deserving of the death that was cursed upon Adam. And we all deserve that. So I think... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a humbling thing to think of. Why has God saved any of us, right? Why hasn't God crushed right. all of us? And then, you know, I always think, like, he gave up his only son. What did Jesus do, really, to go to the cross? I mean, he lived a perfect life. He healed people. He did all these righteous acts. He said, he even told them that, right? He's like, you know, all these days I was with you, I did this, that, and the other. But why do you want to kill me now, right? And so, you know, I'm a man sent from God and told you a good thing, right? I'm paraphrasing John 8. And so, when I think of Christ, he knew no sin, he came sin for us. I mean, they crushed a sinless man, God. God is, you know, sent his son, yeah. and the person of the son. So, that to me is a harder pill to swallow when I think of my lost loved ones who are in hell right now. I'm like, well, you know, I really weep for them sometimes, but when we stop and really, like today, we took the table, when we stop and reflect and weep that. God actually gave up his life for us. He didn't have to do that. Yeah. While well, these people are burning in hell, and they were not willing to give up their life. And even if they would, it'd be worthless because they're just as rotten as we are, right? Yeah. And Josh, hell should never become a flippant thing, you know, to us. It should never be a light subject at all. It's heavy. I mean, the fact that, that anyone would go there and be, be consigned to that kind of punishment is real. And I, I think it speaks more to our low view of the weight of sin and how wretched it is to break the law of God, it says more about that, I think, than it actually says about the character and the nature of God to condemn the sinner. And so I would encourage you to think in, along those kind of lines, along that pathway. What do I really think about sin? Do I really see sin as just something that needs a temporary punishment and then it's forgiven? Or is to break the law of a holy and perfect God who himself sustained you with the word of his power is that serious? And, and it is. I think it's way more serious than we can even comprehend with our finite minds. Um, so I, there have been times that I've, I've really I've felt closer to the Lord by just sitting and thinking about the weight of my sin and just letting God show me how ugly it is. And just meditating on the scripture about you know, the, how the wicked deserve punishment. And that's stuff that people don't really like to think on and, 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 and read about They'd rather read something encouraging. But when we think about the weight of sin, I think the glory of Christ shines even brighter in light of that.
the creation that God created in the beginning didn't have that. There was no man destined for help. Wait, can you expand on that a little bit? It, well, it was after um, the fall, after God created everything, he said, this is good. And Adam and Eve were to live eternally. There wasn't a death and a second death. Okay. That was what God created. Yeah. The, so Yeah, so we we would all agree that what God created was good. After that, that was right. all in conjunction with man, with that creation. Yeah. It wasn't like God said, Okay, I'm gonna make this thing look, these people are gonna make these people aren't. It wasn't what he made. It it mm, he knows all things. He knew where all this was at. Um, and it wasn't a choice in that, like maybe it wouldn't go that way. But what he originally created, that part didn't exist. Don't know if I'm totally tracking with you on that, but it's a hard thing to really conceptualize when we think about before time even existed. So that's part of what I think John was talking about. Not everybody agrees like in the order of things. We, we do know that there's no way to separate God's knowledge of a thing from his responsibility in a thing, right? If God is putting all things into motion, he knows it's going to end up the way that it is. There's no way to say that God did not have a hand in those who go to hell. I mean, he has to have. Right, but and, what I, I'm just saying that Adam and Eve were eternal beings yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. There was not that doubt. Right. Yeah, it, it progressed for sure. Yeah. And, it, and no one would disagree with you that the creation as it stood before the fall was declared very good and was pure and holy. And it was the fall of man that corrupted that, for sure, brought about the need for all of this. But I think the hard part for us to understand is that even the sinner condemned for eternity in hell, that's not a bad thing. That is, that is a good expression of the justice of God, and it displays his might and his strength. Um, but it is, you know, the opposite side of the coin, the grace of sinners, grace bestowed upon sinners, who deserved that very thing and got something better where we get to see the aspect of God that's merciful and loving and redemptive in, uh, in his approach towards the wretched. Not the reparate, necessarily, right? Maybe it's like the full extent of both ways, the full extent of his justice and the full extent of mercy. Yeah. That's why it's eternity. Absolutely. And I think you're, you're, you're on the right track there, Josh, because... We have a hard time understanding a God who is perfectly two things that we often see as the ends of a spectrum. And so as a limited person, like I'm this much merciful and this much just, right? Where do I land on the spectrum? God's the spectrum. He's perfectly just, perfectly merciful. It is really hard for us to fit that totality and that perfection into the vessels of our minds, into our intellect. But it is what he is. There's nothing you can take away from him. He doesn't shift or change. He's not one thing in a certain circumstance and another thing in another. God is always perfectly just and always perfectly merciful and loving and good too. And that's just, that's enough to make your head spin. But it should be. It's God.
because we're afraid of hell. I mean, God has redeemed us yeah. you know, from the penalty of sin, right? And the power of sin. But I think when we meditate on his mercy, we need to be meditating on what he's been merciful. From, right, from. yeah. And the reality in my life is when I go into my office, when I go into the barbershop, when I hear these men and these women talk and engage, it just reminds me of what God has rescued me from. And when he continues to rescue me from, right, yeah. as far as just my day-to-day life. It is sober, and I think, like you said, we, we don't meditate on this enough. Yeah. Yeah, we do suffer, I think, from uh, like a, a kind of social bias where Christendom, as it exists today, tends to put certain things in front of us and put other things on the shelf. So I think there are doctrines that really need to be explored with a humble heart and, and a focused mind, and that the Holy Spirit can help us to understand these things to a greater degree than we do. Um, but we won't if we neglect it and if we leave it to the side. So I think we need to have a boldness when we approach the scripture that whatever's there is good for us. And even if it's something that is hard and it's shocking to us or maybe it upsets us, well, we need to sit in that more. We need to let the spirit work in our hearts as we read through it and carefully compare it to other scriptures so that we can let the word speak to itself about what it's saying to us. God has revealed himself through that word and it's our faithful testimony of, of who we worship and why. All right, guys, well, it's 7.55. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for good discussion. We hope that it was a blessing to you to be here, and uh, we hope you'll come back next week as we look at question 38. You are dismissed. Mm-hmm.